The information in this podcast is current on the day of recording. It is general advice only and does not take your personal situation into account. It may not be suitable for you. Participants in this podcast may also own the stocks discussed. Welcome to Stock Take. My name is Gaurav Sodhi. Joining me today is analyst Graham Whitcomb from Vancouver. No less. Welcome, Graham. Hi, Gaurav. You're becoming a bit of a regular now, Graham. It's great to, to have you on board again. <laughs> And from our Melbourne studio, dog somewhere out of sight, <laughs> is Mickey Mordek. G'day, Mickey. G'day, Gaurav. Hey, Graham. Now, if, we, if we're here barking in the background, it's either Mickey protesting loudly at an idea or the pooch <laughs> is loose. You'll let us know which one, I trust. This is like that, uh, is this like that radio show where you have to guess the sound? <laughs> oh, we, could do, just... we could do that. As you, a special. Thank God for podcasts, right? I remember <laughs> when I first got a car, it was just perpetually on FM radio. And I used to just just despise FM radio so much. It's the one of the worst inventions ever. I'm so Why? glad we don't have to put up with it anymore. <laughs> I still listen to it. <laughs> well, the music's great, but everything in between the music is just horrific. Yeah. Well, whoever that inventor was, you know, Gorev's yeah, looking for across the head. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, no, the FM radio is fine. It's the it's the inventor of the DJ who curates it all off. Anyway, getting it's shit. It's probably all done by it. algorithms now. Um, the the actual people talking on the radio aren't picking the songs. Yeah, but they're still talking. Well, you know how they're saying. You know how they're saying. They're like, well, I guess we're going a bit off topic here. But you know, if you get smart radios, you know, everyone's going to be listening to podcasts and stuff. But if you have a smart radio, you kind of know your customer, and maybe you can tailor the ads and stuff. And like Spotify well, costs money, and yeah. radio's free. So, well, this is actually the um, but but that's the isn't that the buy case for Spotify? That's what they that's the whole point why they're paying millions of dollars for podcast content. It's so they can really target niche advertising all the way down. Mm. Podcasts are amazing that way because they um, they got this really specific long tail of content. So mm. someone who's listening to a gardening podcast or, uh, you know, fairy tale podcast, they have very specific <laughs> interests and specific advertising needs. I think it's been pretty interesting. I mean, I think Spotify, it's a shame we don't, we can't really write about it. I think there's a lot to commend that business. It's, it's quite interesting. Yeah, for sure. I, I use it. I, I love the product. Um, but, um, but I mean, with if you have like smart radios that can sort of you know know the customer and you're getting free, you know a free service as well. Mm. I mean, uh, yeah, I don't know. I, I don't really know what kind of fairy. Anyway, we should probably. <laughs> <laughs> hey, we we're gonna Instagram the the fairy tale podcast. Oh we're, right, we're yeah. To. Okay, yeah. so we'll keep so an eye on the Instagram. If you haven't visited our Instagram page, um, now is a good opportunity to do it. Um, now. Speaking of fairy tales, actually, Mickey, what a great segue, because we have one right here, <laughs> right here. Once upon a time, there was a business called Lynn Lease. And when I was going through university, and when I think I when I first started investing, when I thought of a blue chip, the image in my head was Lynn Lease. It was the one of the best businesses in Australia. It was considered um, bulletproof. Um, I would say Lynn Lease back then, sort of in the 90s, was what is what was what West Farmers is kind of now considered this um, really well managed, fantastic capital allocator, wonderful business that can with with a few dents in it. Um, that was Lindley's twenty years ago, and it has really fallen. It's it, uh, it's probably one that I wouldn't even think of looking at. And I woke up one morning and found it on the buy list. So my question for you, Mickey, is why the heck are we recommending this? Uh, yeah, that's a, it's a, it's a great 
question. So uh, Lendley's, um, as you say, you know, it's obviously it's one of used to be one of Australia's best businesses, and um, I think up until the year two thousand, they recorded something like twenty five years of just consecutive profit mm. growth. So they had, you know, a really good world class um, development business uh, and project management and kind of construction business. So, you know, they worked across. Um, yeah, really big developments, um, sports stadiums and things like that more so today um, and, and and kind of building out, you know, residential um, developments. And they, they also had this financial arm, MLC, which um, mm. NAB now owns. Uh, so the problem was that it was just mismanaged, um, right. essentially. Yeah. I always had this suspicion and I wasn't sure, um, I don't know how true this is, but Looking back with with sort of zero <laughs> zero um, evidence and and I don't know the numbers at all, but is it the case that the MLC business um, was actually growing and flattering the rest of the business, or was the development business at some stage actually a very high quality one? Oh well, I think I think the the development business was a was a good quality business, uh, mm. but it was um, uh, so the MLC business they sold in two thousand uh, mm. seemed to be going pretty well. Um, I think it was specializing in, you know, funds management, more financials and things like that. Uh, And they actually got a really good price for it um, back in the year 2000 because I think NAB just sold it for pretty much the same price that they (laughs) sold it for back in 2000. That's right, yeah. So, uh, yeah, so they basically, they just used all that cash and they went off and they bought, instead of like giving the money back to shareholders, um, and this was obviously after the founder had... um, had died. So it's one of those, I oh. guess, stories where, you know, it was a founder led business who had been I run really, really well. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So Dick Dusseldorp was um, kind of this Dutch immigrant who came in. Mm. He built, built the company up and ran it, um, you know, really, really well for, for many decades. And then um, obviously as he um, passed on, then it was, uh, you know, it, it was given to uh, new management teams who had um, ambitions to go off and, Buy stuff. Well, they had ambitions, they had (laughs) license, and they had cash. Their trifecta was all there. Yeah. Well, exactly. And um, and they went overseas as well, which is always a a, Mm. a risk, um, especially. Uh, It's very hard. And back in those days as well, uh, back in the old days of 2000, the internet wasn't really as... um, it, it, the world wasn't as connected, so it's pretty hard to keep an eye on those overseas businesses. Yeah, or... the, the term interweb was used ironically. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So um, so I guess it's no surprise, you know, that those acquisitions didn't really work out. Um, was it in the UK, Mickey? Is that where they went? They went and built um, shopping malls and things in the UK. Is that right? Oh, they did a whole bunch. Of, I think they bought like six or seven different businesses um, and uh, even a couple of dot-com investments. If I... oh, of course they did, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the year was 2000 and, uh, and it was, it, you were crazy if you weren't, weren't buying um buying them i guess so crazy if you weren't and crazy if you were <laughs> so um yeah so that's kind of it and then i mean so they they did they did brought in a new chief and and he kind of you know he right-sized the business and they looked like they were getting back on track and then the gfc hit and mm. then uh and uh, and then they they actually weren't in too bad a position they had like a fair bit of cash and um, gearing wasn't too bad, so they they were in a good position to maybe capitalize. But they um, they bought a, a, this engineering business. Um, in Where who did they buy that from? Do you know? 
I can't remember the company that they bought it from. No. Mm. And 2010, but, of course, uh, was the height of the engineering construction company, I think, bubble. I think. Uh, yeah, I mean, it was it was it was just a um, it was just a business. I think they thought that it would fit in and help them win contracts for other development work and things. And it just turned out that it was um, it's just been a really bad performer. And and so the way that these engineering businesses kind of work is that you you know you've got a government they want to build like a train tunnel or something and it's a really unique kind of bespoke project you know the costs are hard to estimate and you know the risks are hard to price properly and you know you take on as a constructor you might only have you know a few months to bid on a project and do your due diligence and and you're competing against others as well so there's kind of an incentive to to price um underprice these contracts and so you just get stuck with these um engineering commitments where you've got to build out the tunnel and maybe you've you haven't priced it properly but you've got um you've got a fixed price fixed time contract anyway Mm -hmm. uh so it's just um you can you can lose a lot of money if you if you don't price them correctly and 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 it and it looks like they weren't um so that's been that's kind of been the story of why lend lease is gone uh in a very shortened um abbreviated version of the story of why it's gone from being you know one of australia's best businesses i guess to today Mm -hmm. just being um pretty much discarded and so uh, just to summarize so it sounds like um it was it was founder led the founder left and sold a big chunk of um of the business Uh, for billions of dollars new management came in had the funds and the ambitions to grow the business and just spent that money unwisely yeah, yeah, I think you could you could probably summarize it uh, as as such. Coming back to your original question, so why why are we upgrading it? I mm. think the opportunity now is just that they are kind of uh, shedding some of those problem businesses. So they've 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 gotten rid of the engineering business. They've recently sold um, their services business to ServiceStream, mm. and because people have been burned on this company for just so long, and mm. it just hasn't gone anywhere for two decades, I just think that the market doesn't trust the turnaround story here. and Yeah, that's um, actually a really good point. I'm, I'm, I mean, it's one we've talked about before with Cole, but when when you first raised the idea, Mickey, my instant reaction was, no, 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 no. I, mean, I, was, <laughs> I wasn't even prepared to hear you out. And whenever you get that reaction, you just got to check it because it's often the sign of a decent idea brewing. Yeah, well, I mean, if anyone has the time and wants to look at the article that we published, I don't think I've ever published an article that's received more negative comments. Um, also a great sign. From... Also a great indication. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, it was just universal. It was, I don't think, I don't know if anyone even bought it. Uh, yeah. You know, every well, there was maybe a couple of people, but I think, you know, it, it's just it's just one of those things that just looks so um, ugly and sentiment is just so bad that, 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 that I think that might be um the opportunity i mean there's certainly um there's certainly some risks and and we can um kind of go into those as well but um well, but yeah i think that's do... potentially what the opportunity is yeah. before we do that let's let's just um talk about what remains so you you've said they've shared some of their problem services uh so problem businesses which includes the services business the engineering business we kind of know about those we know they've been um, poor businesses what's left of lendlease and and is it any good yeah, so now what's um now what kind of remains is they've got this um global kind of development business. And so that that goes Can you just that, explain you what know, development is in in this context? 
Yeah, sure. So they they kind of they're designing, um, you know, planning, building, you know, big urban projects. So like say a government client or, um, you know, even a large corporation hmm. wants to repurpose, you know, a big block of land and they want to bring you know bring it up to to uh, the twenty first century. Um, then 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 someone like Lendlease can you know design that manage the whole process in-house and so they you know they capture obviously some development margins and project management fees along the way so they do um, they actually own the fleet of construction um, uh, equipment and do they actually build it or they just kind of um, they uh, subcontract the build as well yeah yeah so they 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 don't retain um, they do have a construction arm which which yes, um, right. w- yeah so which 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 um, caters to a lot of their own internal projects but they do obviously I think it's a mix of you know internal and external depending on the on the project um, mm. but they've got a really good track record um, of delivering on these kinds of projects and you know if you look at things like Barangaroo, um, I remember when I was in Sydney, just uh, you know, you, you see new things getting built there all the time, but it's actually a really nice part of the city now, and I don't think it used to be. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, so I think you know they they've kind of proven the core business there in that development arm is is globally kind of recognised as as you know doing really high quality uh, developments, and um, and so that's why they've won like they've recently won like a twenty billion dollar. Um, project with with google their pipeline is growing of these development projects um but i think the um the longer term story is what the what they can do with those projects is as they as they build a new office building or they build a you know new new block of apartments or something like that they can sell them off or they can retain some for like the rental income or they can um, put them into funds, and then they can spin off those funds and collect funds management fees. And so, over time, it should be transitioning more towards a recurring revenue type model. And so, the core business it looks like it's intact. Like they're growing funds under management, and they're winning new contracts. So it really does seem like it's just a matter of getting rid of the underperforming divisions and can i just get a can i get a clarification here so um i mean if uh so take take the google example so they're building an office block i understand for google would they actually own the office block or they're just kind of designing and constructing it and it's owned by a landlord or google themselves well i think so the google project uh specifically was to address kind of the issue that um, you got all these really high-paid developers moving into San Francisco, and that's kind of pushed out a lot of the affordable housing in San Francisco. And so, to address that, I think Google's kind of working to build out more supply of of, of um, affordable kind of rentals and stuff like that. Mm. Um, and so, they basically partner, you know, with the landowners, and um, and so they draw down on the land as they, you know come up with a new development and then they kind of you know it's sort of a a fluid process where you know over the next 10 15 years or 20 years even because these developments do stretch out for a really really long time Hmm. they are just you know they're building up and building up amenities in the area and they're you know building out new stuff so 
that's kind of the idea, really. But they don't actually. Do they own the underlying property at the end? Yeah, in some in some cases they mm. they do. Um, so not not all of them. So they uh, like the the landowners. They they've got like land management agreements, but um, in in many cases, like they'll they'll have the end development and and they will actually own that as well. So it's all it all depends on the you know the individual project and what they're working on. Um, of course, but so you can kind of think about this as kind of part development and then part fund manager and mm. also part property owner. I think is 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 the right way to 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 see it. Um, there's sort of some evidence now as well to show that like you know that that they are really kind of taking this seriously. Like they, mm. they've refreshed the board, uh, they brought in a new chief and CFO. Uh, the engineering business has been sold, as we've said, and most importantly, as well, you know, they're kind of disclosing key metrics that are going to keep them accountable. So, um, and I think that's a good sign. Like they're mm-hmm. talking about returns on invested capital. They've they've clearly outlined their targets in terms of like an eight billion dollar um, development pipeline. They've kind of said this is a ten year strategy, which shows you know good, some good long term thinking. So. Yeah, I mean, you know, I think that's the that's the opportunity. There, there are obviously some, some risks here, and you know, there's um the, the the risks of it's not easy to get out of some of these engineering deals. And they've got, uh, for example, Melbourne Metro, um, which has had just cost overrun after cost overrun. Um, they've still got to manage that and complete that project, and. Uh, you know, there's there's always the chance of more accounting surprises. It has had a history of, you know, write-downs and provisions and things like that. Mm. But, yeah, I mean, you know, if we don't see management, we just want to see manage, management isn't going off and buying crazy things. And I think underneath it all, there's a decent development business here and um, and, and potentially that could be the, hopefully, the opportunity. Before we talk about valuation a little bit, um Graham, can I get your reaction? I mean, um, we we had pretty swift uh, internal discussion about this, but did, what what did you make of the idea? Um, are you tempted by it? Um, does it turn your stomach and absolutely disgust you? What, what are you thinking? I think it's interesting, uh, an interesting idea. The thing that comes up in my mind is how much the their reputation translates to them actually getting better bids, or, they, or like no matter what their reputation is for quality, do they? St- does the bid still end up going to the person who's offered the lowest amount? Uh, in which case, there'll always be this perpetual problem of uh, cost overruns and that kind of thing. Or do you think that as they're building their reputation, it does flow back to a better bidding process? Oh yeah, no, I think it. I think it does because, um, like, from from the perspective of like a local government or something like that, you know, you don't you want to. Um, I think you you need to be able to trust the operator that you're you're dealing with. These are you know multi-decade um, development projects, and so having that past track record of uh, you know kind of award-winning projects across many cities across the world, um, they've shown a great track record. They've got the people and the talent to be able to you know build really nice places. Um, I think that does that does count for something. Um, as well, I mean, price is you know probably all, always going to be a an element, um, but it's probably not the only uh, consideration. So, um, but yeah, it's a, it's definitely a very different business to the to the to the legacy kind of engineering mm. business. But you know, there's always going to be um, 
you know, cyclical element to this as well, um, mm. because, you know, property prices, um, you know, can, can fall and, and, uh, uh, <laughs> and so that's obviously not good for them. Um, or, you know, there, there's like obviously impacts on rental revenue and, um, things like that, or access to credit markets can all have, mm. a, have a bit of an impact on this business as well. So it's definitely not a, um, riskless idea, uh, or nothing is, but, um, has the yeah. management changed as well since is, – is that the catalyst for selling parts of the business off? Well, I mean, what, what's changed um, inside the company to kind of prompt better, better management and better action? Well, I think it was sort of a board – the board has been pushing and I think it's, it's also just been um, probably shareholders getting a bit fed up as well. It's uh, only taken so them it's... 20 years. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so it's been a really slow process, but it seems like they're finally – just getting around to it um so yeah so the new chief is sort of his um you know he's just he's just gotten started i think in july so we um still just very early to tell and i think they report their results next week so we'll keep an eye Mm. on that and we'll have a we'll definitely have a good listen to it to what he's got to say but um yeah, New management's I mean, yeah, a really good indicator. It, even if um, you know, if, even if the individual you you don't know, the the fact that the board has kind of pushed um, for change and and got a new CEO in there kind of indicates that they want something to change. Yeah, exactly. Um, and uh, you know, so the new chief and CFO um, have both come. They've both got backgrounds kind of working in Asia. So I wonder if maybe more of mm. you know, Len Lease is maybe thinking more about. Um, you know, that, that next uh, leg up for the Asian growth story. Um, so maybe Asia could be more of a focus. I'm not entirely sure, but we'll, we'll probably find out a bit more every time. Well, I okay. did not expect um, that I'd ever have such a long conversation about Lend-Lease, but um, it's a nice update. Uh, good idea, and thanks for extrapolating. I, I think I understand a bit better now. Um, uh, Graeme, anything else to add before we move along? No. Very good, because I have a crazy, wild, and and um, maybe reckless idea of my own. Uh, like Mickey, I'm going to talk about a business that's had an awful track record that I never, ever expected to own or want to own, and that uh, when, I, when I first bought it up, there was a few, I think, uh, stomach-churning uh, gremlins and, uh, and a lot of dissatisfaction, and that's Karoon Energy, which I've kind of... Uh, disliked and um, and been very harsh on over the years. Now, Karun um, is has has a long and mostly awful history. It was started in two thousand three, listed in two thousand four. Um, the odd thing about it, it's actually a, it has been a founder led business for most of that time, and the founder has overseen some excellent exploration success, and and they've also overseen some disastrous capital allocation. Um, management behavior and just decision making, and it's a good antidote to the idea that founders are always the the you know the better managers than sort of professional managers. I know that's generally the case, but there are exceptions, and this, my friends, is certainly an exception because <laughs> the um, I only got interested in this once the founder actually left the business, and it's not often you say that. Um, so what's happened is um, back in in two thousand and eight two thousand nine. Uh, they sold um, uh, a, a big gas discovery they'd made with a with a super major, and they sold it to Origin Energy for sort of six hundred million US dollars uh, cash. Three years later, Origin actually wrote that entire purchase down to zero, 
So it goes to show that they really, um, they got a bit lucky, but that luck resulted in them having a really fat pile of cash, which uh, management just milked. They had exploration all over the place. Uh, They paid um, quite high salaries. There was lots of controversy about the pay going to management and also the fact that um, the founder had brought along um, a couple of family members to sit in key management positions and board positions. Um, For example, the CFO is the founder's son. Um, It doesn't have any accounting qualifications, but sits in the CFO desk, which that's all I'll say about that. But it's highly unusual to have a CEO without accounting qualifications. Um, That's a red flag CFO or CEO? CFO. Oh, Chief, yeah, Chief yeah. Financial Officer. Yeah, yeah. yeah, very unusual to have a um, you know a related uh, related person um, without uh, accounting qualifications sitting in that role. Yeah, especially in that position. Does that not worry you? Uh... Well, that, that's why I haven't touched the stock for, for ten years. <laughs> but um, things have changed, Graham. It's all right. It's they've all right. got they've things got an changed. accountant in. <laughs> well, QuickBooks. Um... <laughs> yeah, geez, it's yeah. So accountants, they're time. hard to find. For, for, you know, despite finding a, a few interesting um, oil and gas deposits, um, they've actually never, in, in their 20, near 20 year history, they've never produced a barrel of oil. Um, and, um, and this was. <laughs> That's red a, flag too. <laughs> That's red flag too. <laughs> and, they've, and they've often um, traded below cash backing, um, which is actually, for me, a red flag as well. You know, if a, if, a, if a company is sitting on a big pile of cash and is trading below their cash backing, it really tells you that the. The market has zero confidence in the management and zero confidence in the prospects of the business. And you need to know something vastly different or vastly superior, I think, to uh, to be able to confident, confidently buy that stock. So, so Gaurav, then, like, so you might be about to explain this, but I'm just looking at the share price. It looks like it got up to like ten ten dollars or something. Yeah. So, what if, was, if if it had all yeah. these problems? How did it ever? How did that happen? Well, that was that. It got up to ten dollars. Um, when it found the gas and made the big sales deal with Origin, um, that was a quite a long time ago. Ah, uh, okay. And the share price um, rocketed. Remember, this started as a as a penny dreadful. It was an anonymous um, exploration business, and it went all the way to ten bucks. I think it had a market cap of two billion dollars um, about ten years ago. And just for context, the market cap today is seven hundred million dollars. So um, wow. it's been it's been a disaster, really. And it, it, the market cap has halved despite them having a lot of um, cash on the books. This is not a business that's had to kind of scramble around for cash. They've always had plenty of cash on hand. Um, so it, it's, been, it's been a disaster, really. And, um, <laughs> and the reason I, I got interested in it is, um, is because um, last year or 20, yeah, 2019, in fact, there was a, um, there was a change on the board. Um, a lot of shareholders have been angry and agitating. The AGMs have been quite confrontational, and um, and shareholders finally, I think, managed to get some change. And a fellow called Bruce Phillips found his way onto the um, onto onto the board as chairman. Now, I've been familiar with Bruce Phillips because he's the founder of AWE, a former buy recommendation, and I used to own the stock, um, and I've been following him for a long time. He's a um, a competent um, honest and and decent operator. Um, so for him to to join the board, I thought, okay, that's interesting. And then um, and then kind of uh, a, a short time later, they made um, what looked to be a really good purchase. They bought a oil field offshore Brazil, 
um, off Petrobras. Now, Petrobras is the Brazilian Brazilian national oil champion, and they have been going around the world selling a lot of their shallow oil fields. Um, this is a multi-hundred billion dollar business, and um, they've had specialization in super deep um, deep water drilling, and so they want to specialize in that, and they're selling a lot of their shallow water, smaller fields. Um, and so Karun uh, sort of picked this this up for 665, I think it was, US million dollars. Um, and I thought, okay, that's interesting. They've got a production asset now. They've got a good chairman on board. Um, and then, of course, Corona came along and their share and the oil price went to zero. And Karun just got walloped because they had um, they were going to be uh, raising capital and taking on a little bit of debt to to buy this field, and and share price and then the oil price was was negative. So um, that looked it looked like the business wouldn't wouldn't survive, but of course we all know what happened next: um, stimulus, low interest rates, the oil price um, recovered, um, and um, in the interim, Karun was actually able to negotiate a a re-signing of the terms with Petrobras. So they agreed to a $380 million initial um, upfront, so basically half the upfront cost of the field. Um, and um, they would take control of the cash flows a little bit earlier. And then the rest of the cost would be um, contingent on where the oil prices would be between, you know, over the next five or six years. So um, what affected what that meant was that the upfront cost was sort of half what it was, and um, and they could use operating cash flows to repay the rest of the field. And in any case, that would be dependent on the oil price. So they'd only really pay uh, for the rest of the field if the field was making lots of money, which is a, a terrific deal. Uh, so that was another interesting tick. But then what really got me interested was when the, um, the founder CEO um, left the business, and that happened last year. Um, he finally left the business. A few months later, Peter Botten came on the board. Peter Botten, many of you might know, is the um, long-running CEO of Oil Search, um, a, a world-class CEO, fantastic energy executive, and um, and he's been responsible for working in difficult jurisdictions, building a lot of value, um, and he's something I've got a lot of time for. So we've got a couple of new um, and and rather famous members of the board. Um, you got the founder gone, you got a new asset purchased at, at a good term, and then you've got a new CEO coming on. So the new CEO is actually a um, uh, an ex-employee or the ex-head of Shell in Brazil. So he's got a lot of local knowledge, um, local experience, knows the assets pretty well. And this is not a brand new exploration asset. You know, the field is called Borna, and it's been running for 10 years. It's got all the infrastructure in place. It's got a big, gigantic what's known as an FPSO. It's, it's, an, it's a floating processing facility. So what happens you know, there, there's pipes going down to the oil field. They have a few pumps and injectors that actually extract the oil. It, goes, it, it flows through the pipes, goes into the processing facility where it's kind of processed and shipped all on the one site. And, and so everything's kind of there running. There's, there's very little um, risk. There's little, very little that's unknown. There's been lots of data and lots of experience running this field. So it's quite a low risk operation. And there's a there's a little expansion opportunity, an identified field, a small one nearby that that sort of Petrobar never bothered with. Petrobar kind of let the didn't really keep up the capex schedule, so there's a couple of pumps that aren't working. So there are ways that um, Karun can come in and kind of immediately start improving the output and performance of the field. They have a good understanding of the geology and the reservoir characteristics. 
and even better, right next door um, are two kind of stranded um, stranded um, assets that that Karun has found in the past, but never managed to be able to get online because they're kind of out in the middle of nowhere and it's hard to get infrastructure connected. So the longer term plan is actually to connect those fields to the Borna infrastructure and expand the entire project. And if they can do all of that, and um, you know these are well understood fields, you've now got good management and you've got financial resources. The field is pumping out cash flow and it should be more than enough to fund the development work. I think you're looking at about $4 a share in, in value. And he, the business here is, is sitting at sort of a dollar twenty or whatever. Um, and and what's more attractive really is the downside risk is pretty low. You know, save for a collapse in oil prices, in which case this thing famous last words. Famous last <laughs> words, indeed. We indeed. saw the we saw the price go negative earlier this yeah. year, last year, but that's that's, uh, that's those are old. Well, those I think days every, are behind us. Any time you're dealing with a, a a commodity producer, you sort of know that risk. You know you're taking on the oil price risk, and you've got to be comfortable with that and allocate the stock in your portfolio with that in mind, right? So I, I don't think I'm... You wouldn't put, you know, yeah. all of your... Yeah. It's, not, it's not a 10% position size or anything, you know? Um, but uh, what what the, the low risk part comes from the um, operating and um, and reservoir characteristics. Often an oil field can surprise once you actually get in there. Um, you don't really know, you know, how it's going to work. Once you're actually in there pumping... Surprises doesn't sound that great to me, though. <laughs> if you're buying an oil field... I probably but, want to know what I was buying. Yeah, but once it's been operating, the um, you actually got got um, operating reservoir characteristics. You sort of know what's happening, and it's unusual for uh, something bad to happen in the field that's been pumping for ten years. So I, it, it it happens, but very rarely. I've I've rarely come across it. Um, so then, from that point of view, it's relatively low, low risk. So so you know, the oil prices can do anything, and maybe we're back at twenty bucks or thirty bucks. In that case. This thing is worth zero, but um, uh, but you know if it, if oil sticks around at sixty to seventy, which I I expect it to. I mean I don't have any real insight into the oil price. I don't know, but um, I do know that there's been sort of a trillion dollars of capex cancelled over the last few years. That that there's not many people spending money on oil development and exploration. So I know that's going to be good for prices, and we know that no one really wants to buy Karoo and when. You sort of look at uh, people covering Karoon and, and talk to people inside the industry. Karoon still has an odor about it, and there's a, yeah. a real reluctance to back a company that's you know been a bit of a disaster over two decades. So um, there are real signs of change here, and and I think now might be the opportunity just to to take a nibble and come back and 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 pick up the stock at an interesting price. Is the son still the CFO? He is for for the moment, but they've got a new CEO. They've got new board members. I I would bet that he wouldn't last long, and he hasn't caused any blow ups for a little while, so that's good. <laughs> <laughs> but that would be that would be obviously be another plus to see like a, a bit more uh, uh, to see someone else in that role. I'd probably be happier. Yes, I do like the the whole. Um... Uh, change of management thing, and you know, good directors are jumping on board. That's usually yeah, that's usually sign. that's that's right. And and we're, we're kind of used to watching management and um, you know, look looking for good people in the management positions. But we sometimes forget that the directors actually have a lot of power, and who's sitting in those director roles is super important. And so I've I've kind of 
learn to follow um, directors along as well. Um, watching good directors come and 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 go is actually really good. Yeah. Um, the other thing I've I've kind of learnt, and and one of the reasons where this is now sitting as a spec buy is that um, is that the ma- the market is is of course very efficient and very good at incorporating new information and reflecting it in share prices. We know that. What it's sometimes not so good at is um, incorporating change. And I have noticed that when something changes, um, the market can be a bit slow to reprice um, mm. something that has changed. And we've seen that time and time again. I mean, we were banging on about how BHP was just a much better capital allocator and the market was very cautious about that. And, and I think now, you know, BHP is over 50 bucks a share. Everyone's kind of on board. And um, and everyone sort of accepts that this is going to be a better capital allocator. There are tons of other examples of of, um, of change that's happening and happened in businesses, and it's taken a bit of time for that change to be reflected in prices. I think this mm. might be another example of that. Well, that's a really really good point. Um, and I guess it's kind of getting to you know how do you find how do you find new interesting buy ideas in the current market when things are a bit expensive as well and maybe maybe looking for a bit of change or something where the story is is different mm. um yeah i think that's an interesting interesting way to think about it well it, it is noteworthy that both Lindley's and karoon have those characteristics in common don't they i mean they've both been bad businesses for a long time and suddenly something has changed and the business has changed and there's an opportunity for that change to be reflected in the share price mm. Do we have any questions about oil, Brazil, Karun, Samba? I have a, I have a stupid question, but I, I don't know. I would know expect nothing less, <laughs> Mickey. Well, so with um, Mickelson, I, I, just, I just don't know enough about oil, but um, yeah, you know, is it I still guess taken it, from waves. <laughs> <laughs> is it? Is it? Um, as we transition to like electric vehicles and stuff, yeah, that would um, is that so? Is that part of like the bear case or yes i, I think yeah. that's right yeah I, I think that's correct um yeah so one of the things we have to think about now and i and um and this is i don't think the industry has really grappled with this the way the coal industry has is that there is definitely a um demand shock coming um all major car manufacturers are now talking about stopping the sale and production of of um, tr- conventional engines, engine vehicles, and and only doing electric, and and once that happens, obviously it will be it'll be slow, right? I mean, car fleets generally take sort of a generation to to turn over. Um, the average age of, of a car in Australia, I think, is like eleven or thirteen years, and it's no different anywhere else in the world. Uh, electric cars for now are, are more expensive, um, and in Australia, anyway, in, in lots of parts of the world, they haven't really taken off in the, the absence of government subsidies, so. Look, I don't think it's. I think it's going to be a slower transition than many people think, but there's no doubt it is happening, and it is a looming shock for the oil industry, which they haven't really addressed or dealt with. So yes, uh, that that's for me a reason to watch your allocation, um, rather than a reason not to invest. Mm. Yeah. But yes, it's an important point. Thanks for bringing it up. Do you know how much oil use goes towards cars versus things like uh, fertilizers or? plastics and the rest yeah, of it. Yeah, it's most. Uh, oil is largely a transport fuel, so I think it's like 70% or something goes to um, transport and the remaining goes to petrochemical industry. So it's it's a big, big deal. Yeah, so even a smallish 
um, change to the electric fleet will be reflected in all the prices over time. Yep, it's a, it is a really important deal. Is that part of um, like I I because again I don't follow the um, oil industry that much, but is that uh, sort of reflected in in prices? Do you think across the industry, like are they is oil out of favour? Oil is certainly out of favor. You've seen the oil price. I don't think it's reflected in the oil price, but it's certainly reflected in equity valuations. The mm. The oil price is actually pretty good by historical standards. It's maybe slightly above um, uh, at the, the longer term average, or the, the recent average anyway. And um, you'd, you'd expect oil equities to sort of be priced a lot higher, and they're, they're not. Um, so, so Woodside at sort of 75 oil really should be close to 35 or $40 and sort of trading at half that. Now, Woodside has its own problems. It's, it's going to raise capital. The market knows it's going to raise capital, and so the, the price is staying a bit low for that reason. But um, you know, all other oil, oil search should probably be about 6 bucks, really, and it's sort of $4.00. Um, it's across the industry. The the big guys in in uh, in the US, um, because the, their valuations are being held back, they're actually just pumping out dividends. They're the biggest dividend payers in America at the moment. And the shale guys, who traditionally have been the cowboys of the industry, you know, these guys pumping um, reckless amounts of shale oil with with disregard to the financials. They're these these guys are sitting on billions of dollars of losses while increasing production. That's now totally reversed. And you've got the shale industry now holding back on production and trying to pay dividends because there's a recognition that the uh, the only way to get or the best way to get returns to shareholders is not really through expanding output but through dividends. And so the behavior in the industry kind of reacts to the changes in the industry. So you're seeing a self-imposed discipline on the supply side, and that should that should help everyone stay profitable. But the the days of sort of uh, $100 oil, I think that's very unlikely. Um, so we're, we're dealing with probably a um, a oil price that probably won't spike to the levels that the peak oil guys were talking about so a couple of years ago. Mm. But the, yeah. the oil price is certainly the obvious risk here. It's just right. so hard to pick them, the <laughs> prices. <laughs> yeah, well, no one knows. Oh, really you mean knows. pick the price. <laughs> yeah. No, I meant I, I meant, meant pick, pick the, the risk. Oh, right. Oh, you pick the risk. It's now, play, note that it's a spec buy. It's not for everyone, and it's only a small allocation. But, um, you know, it, it's hard finding interesting ideas. I think this is one of them. Um, Graham, let's move on to a stock you've been looking at for a while. In fact, one that's been wildly successful, and I'm not sure anyone owns it, <laughs> and we certainly <laughs> haven't been talking about it very much, which is Credit Corp. Uh, you, you know, we you, you recommended Upgraded this, I think, last year. The share price has probably more than doubled by now. It's a, got a long history of wonderful um, operation. Two of its um, key competitors are on, on their knees, if not dead. And they've got a expansion in the U.S. that's coming along quite nicely. Um, they covered off their results. I'm more interested, though, in, in how the business is progressing. So maybe just for those who don't know, explain what the business quickly does and then tell us where they are at the moment. Uh, so Credit Corp. I think we mentioned last week we were talking about these this idea of having a sin portfolio and credit corp would have to be Ooh, at the I top love of it. the list. Cause, cause <laughs> hey, hang on, hang on. It's not at the top of the list. There's a little company called Whitehaven that probably belongs <laughs> at the top of the list. Hey, yeah. Graham, I mean, the banks need their money somehow. I mean, yeah, I don't see, it's not going to go collect itself. Yeah, I don't see the, uh, I don't see it as being as terrible as, um, 
I mean, it's playing a, a role in society. If you feel that uh, people don't have to pay back their debts, then that's one argument. But if people are defaulting on their debts, Credit Corp goes about collecting them using non uh, kind of predatory tactics. I think it calls you a few times, sends some letters, and then that's about it. Whereas some of the others will be more likely to take you to court and really make life miserable for the debtor uh, mm. or for the borrower. But yeah, Credit Corp has a pretty good history. It doesn't have any regulatory actions against it, or uh, it has a below average complaint rating. So in terms of debt collectors, which are never going to be the most popular glamorous uh, I just got stocks. I just got this mental image of someone at a barbecue saying oh so why did you buy credit corp because it's got a below average complaint rating <laughs> obviously <laughs> no regulatory actions this year yeah. and then they well, high five each other that is yeah. a pretty good sign though because in in this kind of industry you'd think that that regulatory issues would be pretty common wouldn't they so well that's the thing is it's probably the most complained about uh industry and it does the the management uh, who I have a lot of respect for, feel that that is one of their competitive advantages, kind of being the good guy, in a sense, among uh, debt collectors, because especially over uh, the last kind of five years, there's been a lot of scrutiny of the banks and different lenders, and so they don't want to associate anymore with the uh, more predatory debt collectors who might have got them an extra cent or something or other per dollar of uh, loans outstanding, but then you end up upsetting all of these people, causing all of this pushback, and then it reflects badly on ANZ or Westpac or whoever's actually selling mm. the debt. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, yeah, the credit corp's been run pretty well, and it's over the past 13 years or so since the uh, current management has been in place, they've got a very good track record of not chasing uh, mediocre returns, which is very tempting in the in the debt collecting industry because the way that it works is they'll a bank will have a a whole portfolio of written off loans where the people have defaulted six months ago then it'll collect these up say a million dollars worth of loans and it'll sell them to the debt collectors and there's usually only a few working in each jurisdiction which then bid on it uh, in an auction process Uh, and so they might buy say a million dollars worth of theoretical loans for um $10,000 $10,000 or something or other. Uh, and then their job is they purchase it at, at rock bottom prices and try and reclaim kind of 20 grand worth of loans out of it. So there's always a temptation, kind of like the uh, construction industry, where you want to overbid. It would be very easy for Credit Corp to double its uh, market share overnight if it just paid a little more for the loans that it's purchasing but it doesn't really have that history instead you've got this history of nice stable margins and you've got collections always coming in ahead of what they paid for the actual Mm. ledger and so it has a it's not only responsible on the collection side but it also has a very responsible management in terms of the purchasing side which is where the biggest risk is that's where a lot of other debt collectors have ended up going bankrupt because they'll overpay for the loans and they can't collect as much as they had paid for them and you end up losing money out of it. It is actually a really impressive characteristic because when you think about it, the urge from management to drive profits is really insatiable across most businesses and it's very easy to accomplish here. You just have to go out and buy more stuff and you can recognize the profit up front and then you deal with all the you know the, the costs and the risks further down the line. So it I guess that's why the competitors have gotten into trouble. They've fallen into that trap. Yeah, you're exactly right. It's one of those 
businesses where you can take on a lot of risk today, make your look your books look really good, and then it's only someone a few years from now who has to wear the pain. But uh, yeah, Credit Corp doesn't do that. Was it the CEO? Is it he? Did he found the business or is he? No, he it? came in in two thousand eight, uh, and yeah, he he's had a so he's had a good history with the company. He led it through the financial crisis, uh, has led it ever since. And I'm trying to remember whether he has a large ownership stake. I don't think so, uh, which is another one of those interesting characteristics where most of these companies you would have, well, the good ones would have a CEO that has a large stake in the business. But uh, yeah, I, I don't think that uh, Could the current just be CEO does. Like a cultural, cultural thing as well. It just seems like... Um, like I think about, you know, Berkshire, for example, like their insurance arm and how they kind of think about risk and stuff like that mm. could just be a slightly different way of approaching things or is that, is that what's happening or? Well, he does seem to be just good. <laughs> when you see interviews with him, uh, he's always just very intelligent, well-spoken, mm. uh, seems like a very able manager. There's performance pay, so... I mean, he does get compensated when he performs well. I was about to ask you about uh, that, right? So, um, so what? Can you just go into that a little bit? So, it's because it's very unusual for this kind of behavior to be going on for such a long time. <laughs> I just want to see how what what are the kind of um, incentives that are driving it. So, it, I was going to ask you whether there's a lot of equity, but it sounds like there's some other mechanism at play. Can you just, do you mind? Yeah, just there's, there's not a lot of equity, but there is mm. uh, various types of performance pay. I think by memory, it's around half of his overall peg ends up coming from performance characteristics yeah, right. okay uh, that, that is yeah that's quite a bit and is that that's an annual thing is it in terms of what, so, what do you mean um, do, do they measure that over a one-year period or is it over a, a, a multi-year period and it kind of vests over time oh that's a great question i can't remember i'm not sure I imagine mm. that it would be over it must be over time because... you've, got, you've got the evidence there don't you yeah over a long yeah time. when you're yeah. When you're buying these loans, if they're measuring it properly, then it can take five years to end up yes, getting every right. last penny out of it. Yeah, so yeah. I don't think it would be based on one year. Yeah, it's yeah. probably returns on capital, if anything. Mm, okay. Yeah. And so, so Graham, the you know it, it's, it has this wonderful um, record of performance. Um, <laughs> it does better than its peers. Um, tell us what's happening in in the US because that's um, they've identified that as a new engine growth how are they going over there really well it's been interesting to follow because they only started uh moving over to the u.s when i first started following the stock mm. uh, back in kind of 2013 or so and for the first few years it was terrible it was loss making there was nothing really going on but they've seen they seem to have really uh hit their stride over the past few years and it's been growing much more uh, i think they just had to build their reputation essentially they've now got more lenders on their uh, hmm. on the ledger panels uh, and they've built a reputation. So they're already the sixth largest debt collector over there, which is pretty incredible yeah, right. to go from zero to that in less than that's, a decade. That's without any acquisitions. That's just building up their organic business. Yeah. And right. uh, just just expanding through office expansions and hiring more staff. Hmm. Uh, it's a very favorable market for debt collectors over there. Uh, so it's much more favorable on the regulatory side and also on the legal side though from what i know uh credit corp doesn't actually pursue it 
legally very much in the courts. But there, there are, are you saying, Graham, tech- we will never find a TV show with uh, <laughs> muscled up debt collectors from Credit Corp <laughs> banging down doors? Maybe Credit Corp just doesn't get caught and their goons are hiding behind the scenes. Uh, that's exactly what came to my mind too, Gaurav. I was just... Uh, they're all American, right? They're, they're handlebar mus- mustaches. <laughs> handlebar and... mustaches, yes. <laughs> yeah. Uh, no, they seem to be... But but yeah, the, the US market is... They rule in terms of um, all of those different characteristics that it's also 10 times larger than Australia. So wow, there's really? A, there's a okay. lot of potential for growth there if they keep... And- uh, keep doing well. And is it a national market or is it a regional market? So do, do they have a big market share in a small part and they have a difficulty kind of breaking into the rest of it? Or is this kind of like a big national rollout? No, it's a it's it's across the whole uh, nation because they're dealing mainly with the large bank lenders which have debts everywhere. Okay. Uh, it's mostly credit card debt. And these days it's not someone knocking on your door trying to reclaim a debt. It's all done either over the phone or by letter. Mm. Uh, so, yeah, it's... There's not specific markets. I think different states end up uh, being more favorable uh, on the legal side, which is why Credit Corp operate in the states that they do. Uh, mm. But I'm I'm not sure whether it that would make it kind of a local market. I'm pretty sure that they deal with people out of state as well. Okay. So I've got a obvious question, I think, Graham. Um, you've described actually a really good business that has a terrific track record and um, you know fine operating metrics um, we'd call it a, a high quality one right and it's got a it's got a, a foreseeable avenue of growth and it's trading at just 20 times which I know in the past may have been high but today that looks quite cheap for me and I'm um, like why isn't this on the buy list why, why aren't we buying it now well we did buy it at half the price. That's true. <laughs> um, <laughs> That's so, a good answer. <laughs> yeah, maybe we should have been buying it for a bit longer, and that was probably just conservatism that got in the way. Mm. But you're right; it is a good business. And uh, are the multiples. I, I mean, are there risks that worry you about it? Graham, yeah. Or? So that's the thing: is that you can't just look at it at twenty times, compare it to something like CSL, and say, "Oh, therefore, it's." good at this valuation no, I'm, just there crossing, is a lot I'm just crossing that strategy off my playbook hang on <laughs> <laughs> yeah the there are these kind of long tail risks from it so if you look at something like the financial crisis or even what we just kind of went through it went it could have gone a lot worse uh because they're already buying it they're already buying pe- debts that people have defaulted on so you know you are getting not just subprime borrowers but the people who don't intend to pay back the money so if you own a huge book of these debts going into some sort of uh, mm. financial crisis or recession, yeah, right. okay. the the odds of you reclaiming what you paid are like dramatically lower than any other kind of okay. lending. Okay, understand. Uh, so right. yeah, it's the kind of thing where it can look like it's doing very well for a long time, uh-huh. and then when you get these big hiccups, it ends up being uh, a disaster. But you can only lose so much money, and Credit Corp, to its credit, uh, <laughs> put that on put put that on the on the on the headline. You can only lose so much money. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it has a downside similar to Karun uh, Energy. Oh dear. Um, well, um, I guess the thing though we learned from the pandemic as well is just that um, when these crises hit, I mean, the the government isn't just going to let people uh, go broke. Uh, do you think that changes things at all, or well, you wouldn't? 
that's what I've learned so much from this crisis is that it has behaved so unusually for Credit Corp, FSA Group, a few other small lenders that would have benefited from uh, kind of a recession or something negative happening. So in Credit Corp case, the although a recession is going to impact it a lot more because it won't be able to reclaim the money that uh, it has on its current book, because it's a supply and demand for the ledgers themselves, as there's a lot of more people defaulting in a recession, the banks are selling a lot more ledgers, which then pushes the price of those ledgers down during those auction processes. So although it might have higher defaults on its current book, it ends up purchasing uh, its new ledgers for much lower prices than it was before. So it ends up um, kind of like a baker or something suddenly finding the price of flour drops 50%. It's going to, it might be bad now if that impacts, um, or if that's a reflection of bread prices going down but mm. over the long term you've then got all this flour which is dirt cheap and you can sell it hopefully in the future for a much higher price so yeah but what this crisis has kind of shown me is that it can be too bad in a sense so what you would have expected to happen over the past year was that ledger pricing would go down they would have a higher rate of defaults but then they'd end up filling their books with ultra cheap debt ledgers that they could then collect on in the future Instead, what happened is people weren't defaulting on their credit cards. Savings rates went through the roof. Government stimulus put all this cash in people's uh, bank accounts. And so there was this kind of dry spell of ledgers where the banks didn't have enough debt to sell. Uh, The complete opposite of what you would have expected to happen in a recession. So, yeah, we're now coming out of that now where the supply has picked up again and Credit Corp is putting its foot on the accelerator and buying up lots of cheap debt again. So that sets it up well for the next few years. So it might end up being a positive overall that it didn't have many defaults during the actual recession, but now it's got a bunch of uh, cheap debt that it's able to collect on in the future. Hmm. It's a good idea. Yeah. I like it. I wish I'd bought it earlier. I'm not quite sure. I guess back when, when it was upgraded, there's just a lot of upgrades going around, um, lots of businesses available, lots of choice. And probably know now that next time we have that scenario i mean that sounds like uh the perfect time to pick up credit corp right when it goes through one of these conventional downturns and um and one of these crises crises pop up um, yeah the there's always a bit of hindsight bias because mm. it was uh i mean in hindsight we know that it doubled over the following year but at the time it was still an uncertain recommendation in the sense of i mean we upgraded it because we thought it was undervalued at that price but we didn't know that the following year there was going to be so much stimulus that people wouldn't be defaulting on their debts or anything yeah. like that. Who yeah. knows how it would have turned out if that had been different. Mm. Um, yeah, so no. you can't beat yourself up too much for not buying it when it was the best time to buy. <laughs> all right, put down my, my bat and ball. Now, um, <laughs> I think that's all we have for it. Anything else to add? Mickey, anything? Do you own Credit Corp, Mickey? No, I don't, but... Uh, I, you don't know uh, anything that's that, gone up. <laughs> <laughs> after that conversation, I wish I, I wish I did. It sounds like a really good business. All right. Well, we've got, um, we got reporting season going on at the moment, um, so let's get on with that. Just quickly, um, gentlemen, what are we all um, working towards or, or looking at at the moment? Um, Mickey, you've got, uh, what company reports are you looking at? Oh, jeez, you know, you're, you've exposed me. Um, <laughs> well, I just wrote up Ale uh, yesterday, and yeah, I think I, I, I don't, I don't have anything. Um, 
I've got uh, a couple companies reporting next week. So I'm going to spend the next few days just kind of getting to know a few new businesses that I'm looking at. Um, but um, don't want to don't want to spoil the surprise. So yeah. um, very yeah. exciting. Okay, <laughs> Graham, how about you? What are you um, What are you looking at? I've got ResMed coming up tomorrow, I believe. Mm. So that will be next on the list. And there's Transurban, and then I've got a, the busy couple of weeks after that. Mm. Yeah, when I've all got... of mine inconveniently report at the same week. <laughs> oh, don't you have to? I've got that as well. They all kind of report at the same time. I would wish they'd space these things out. Don't they do this with us in mind? I know. Very selfish behavior. <laughs> I've got, uh, I, I think Telstra is the one. Telstra and probably TPG are the two I'm, I'm quite looking forward to getting into. TPG just has been gone silent and said nothing about how they're going. Now, we know they've got a wonderful fiber business. But that's probably been hit by the pandemic as offices have, have largely shut in population centers. Um, and I suspect they're doing quite badly in mobile, which explains the the, the silence. So I want to see what those numbers look like. Um, on the other hand, I think Telstra is actually going to report reasonably well for the first time in a long time. So that's an interesting one as well. BHP may have the best result of the season. Um, and I, and I'm, I th- I'm re- that's going to be a pleasure to cover because it's just going to be wonderful big numbers all spewing out of that company and the decision is actually going to be when to when to take profits and when to sell which is going to be a tricky one Um, but there's lots of this is looking really like a quite um good season so far i don't know if you guys um feel the same way but looking at my companies i think i can't see too much going wrong really famous last words and (laughs) (laughs) and uh, i'm quite looking forward to getting into it it looks it's all looking um pretty pretty good but again i don't i don't cover sydney airports and flight center and stuff i don't know i, I kind of like reporting season i, I find it quite I like uh, the pressure quite fun it's only a yeah. short concentrated amount of pressure i wouldn't want it to it does make it long. more interesting like you go through six months where not much happens and then all of a sudden everything happens so yeah um, it does you've got plenty of interesting things to read about and um it's just it, it is a lot of um uh writing and and um and and work basically it is but, a lot of um... work but mickey if you're in sydney um there's nothing else to do so i'm, I'm happy for all the work and i hear like you've got a couple of cases in victoria you're gonna be in lockdown by the weekend no doubt um so you're gonna yeah, have well plenty i mean of time. We, we we tried to let you guys have the crown but um we're we're, we're taking it back off you so we're undisputed lockdown champions no um, no I undisputed that's that's right no one's gonna take that from you <laughs> We're working hard to keep it, that's for sure. Okay, Mickelson, good to have you on board. Uh, thank you. And Graham, thanks for joining me. Thanks, Gaurav. For everyone else, thank you for listening.